This is Start Disrupting, a show about the innovator, scientist, and designer disrupting industries and creating 10x impact. I'm your host, Brett Malone, President and CEO of the Virginia Tech Corporate Research Center. Today on the show, we talk about disruption and the bridge of familiarity with Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He's author, speaker, and host of the podcast, Built for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers. I think you're really going to like the format of this show. We get into all kinds of great things that are helpful for entrepreneurs and startups. So here we go. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're uh, pleased to have you here. As you know, we have a a research park here, uh, 36 buildings, 230 companies, and we've got a lot of young technology-oriented entrepreneurs. They're anxious to hear just a little bit more about the opportunity around uh, change and what what you're seeing in the world of disruption right now, given, given the world economy. Yeah. Well, there's so much to talk about, but I'll start with this. I think that in the last year and change, COVID, we went through four phases collectively. And they were, number one, panic, absolute terror, panic. And then number two, adaptation. Then number three, new normal, right? We started to feel like, oh, well, this is, I guess this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And then number four, most important, wouldn't go back. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't go back is not to dismiss terrible loss and tragedy. Obviously, there was quite a lot of that. But what I have heard over and over again from entrepreneurs and what I witnessed in the past year and change is that is that people who adapted and found new things and really sought opportunity and change, what they came to were these new ideas, new ways of operating, new ways of serving their clients and their teams and everybody that are so powerful that they're going to hold on to those things long after we've returned to quote unquote normal. Right. And they have returned, they, they, they have found a wouldn't go back moment. They wouldn't want to go back to a time before they had this. And that's so powerful. And you wonder, well, how did that happen? And the, the best answer that I got to it was uh, from a guy named Brian Berkey at the Wharton School who um, I had on my podcast. And he said something like, if not exactly these words, moments of crisis shift the window on what we are willing to collectively take seriously, which is to say that we have always limited, I think by nature we have to, right? We can't be open to every single idea. We would go crazy. But we limit what ideas we are willing to consider and what ideas we say are impossible that we have to put to the side. And when a crisis comes along and it, it puts a barrier between us and some of the easiest ideas, some of the things that we're most comfortable with, we have to shift And we have to start taking seriously things that we wouldn't have taken seriously before. And some of those ideas were really good Mm -hmm. and really transformative. And we came away better for having been forced to consider them. Yeah, this reminds me too, you know, when you think about change and you think about the grittiness of persisting with an idea versus pivoting. I mean, we all have talked for years about entrepreneurship and pivoting on the model. And this seems to be the loss aversion has just been taken off the table. Now anything goes. Mm-hmm. And so as people start to adapt and change their models, it no longer becomes pivot out of necessity. It's pivot out of opportunity. Oh, that's a really good point. I like the idea of what you just said there, that loss aversion is taken off the table. That's exactly right. I mean, I've been calling it reconsider the impossible, right? It's mm-hmm. not like these ideas, these new things that people have came down from bars, 
right? They, they, weren't, they were not introduced by a supernatural force. They were always available to us. We just didn't take them seriously before mm-hmm. because we were so comfortable with what we, what we had and we thought we understood the rules. We right. knew this was good, this was bad, and then we were operating in those constructs. But as it turns out, we don't really fully know the rules. Yeah, and I think even some of the, the startups, even some of the companies that are out there that have done well in very established industries, some of them got steamrolled because they were just, pan, you know, they, they were frozen and they didn't know how to adapt. And the other companies who said, hey, we've got to blow this up. We've got to learn how to, we've got to, learn how to uh, do to-go drinks. You know, we've got to figure right. out how to do margaritas to-go. And other companies, it blew their mind, that concept. And so little things like, uh, adapting to a business model, it doesn't mean you have to change your whole business model, but it does mean it gives you the chance to innovate in a much different way and, and the freedom, the necessity to do that. That's right. What do people need now? Because especially during a moment of great change, the answer could be different than it was 10 minutes ago. And it's not, it's not, we're not running a business to have found one thing and then hammer it home forever, right? We're there to be innovative and be useful. And how to be innovative and how to be useful is going to constantly change. And we need to build, I mean, even in normal times, we need to be building in systems that force us to constantly evaluate whether or not we're doing things the best way that we can for the needs of now. And yet so many companies don't do that. You know, there's this Mm -hmm. HBR piece that I'm obsessed with, it asked the question of why big companies stop innovating. And the answer, as proposed, was because a company starts as an innovator. It identifies something new that it can bring to the world, and that thing works. And then, slowly but surely over time, the company shifts more and more of its resources away from innovation and towards efficiency, so that everybody, top to bottom, is being tasked with and measured by Can you do this in a more efficient, more cost-effective way? So if you're Blockbuster and your innovation was stores where people could come and rent uh, DVD, well, originally VHSs and then DVDs, then you want to figure out how can we make these stores more efficient? How can we get people in and out faster? How can we get them to rent more? Are there other things that we can have them purchase? What's the supply chain? And that is all well and good. But the problem is that if you focus on efficiency and everybody top to bottom is simply being measured by efficiency, well, then you stopped innovating. And then as soon as disruption comes along, you have literally no system inside of your company to respond to it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, when you look for that process optimization and top down, try to institutionalization, that's mm-hmm. how you easily and very quickly drive out all the creatives in your company because yeah. they were there because you're innovative. And as soon as you start icing over all the innovation, they're gone. Yeah, that's right. They're gone um, because they don't want to stick around to be like efficiency creators. That sounds so boring. Who wants to do that? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, there is a, there's a culture issue here, obviously. But what it comes down to is really a belief that tomorrow has to be different. I mean, that, that has to be your foundational understanding of what it is that you're doing, that, that what you have built is great, but it may not be relevant very much to what's coming tomorrow. But that's not a problem because what you built today, even if it's not 
100% relevant to tomorrow has taught you so much and has given you the front row seat to whatever change is coming so that you can react to it faster than your competitors. I mean, how am I hearing stories over and over again about people who like sort of had what might be called failing businesses four or five mm -hmm. times in a row or like so mm -hmm. many pivots that didn't really work and then they found tremendous success. Well, mm -hmm. the reason I'm hearing that story is because that wasn't failure. That was data collection. And that was an understanding that everything that I have built has to lead towards whatever comes next, not towards a maintenance of whatever I have already built. So culture is an interesting word to use in this conversation because that, are, are we seeing cultures in companies evolve to be more flexible for longer periods of time because we've went, we, you know, we've gone through this period of rapid innovation by necessity. Yeah. I, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that we will see in the coming years how this moment has impacted culture in, in, in companies. My guess is just like you said before, this was a moment in which many incumbents stumbled and fell. And there were other companies who were almost primed, I think, because of the innovative culture that they had created and the moment that they're in, that they were able to capitalize on this opportunity. Now, going forward, what do you get? I mean, I think that you get some companies that are likely unclear what their role is in the future. There are probably going to be a lot of companies that are still going to go through the same terrible thing that so many people do, which is that they, the top talks a lot about the need for innovation, but then doesn't actually reward it. And so what you end up with is a lot of, a lot of, a lot of wishful thinking, I think, right. um, and also a lot of siloing. That right. innovation is supposed to happen over here, away from the core business. And then I think you'll have a bunch of companies who learned very well that success comes out of nimbleness and it comes mm -hmm. out of making that innovation and that those innovative teams a core part of the business infused throughout everything and not siloed. You can't be like, hey, you guys over there, you do the innovation while we'll do the rest of the work. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how you build a company. And that's not how you build into the future. Well, you know, circling back around, you and I both were hard on the process geeks just a few minutes ago. I'm going to say, yeah. actually, there's a standout example. Uh, everyone knows Chick-fil-A and the Chick-fil-A franchise. And what they've done on our side in terms of changing the drive-through experience, you know, that innovation and that process management, there isn't anyone that I talk to or that I've gone through a Chick-fil-A drive-through with that doesn't ask, how did he do that? You know, it is so fast. There's always a line. And, you know, at the same time, it has upped the game for the customer experience. And so that innovation isn't just about the product and the opportunity in a new market. They're selling the same stuff to the same people, but they've elevated the experience just by making it more accessible. That's a really good point. And, and, and an important one to add, because, right, I was ragging on efficiency. It, it, hey, you and I both were. I mean, being yeah. creative, <laughs> we're like, all right, process geeks, we're done with them, we're moving on. But, you know, the experience, if that's what you need to engineer the experience that's going to elevate your game and competitiveness, then that's what you need. That's right. And well, so let's, let's take an, I don't know the inside workings of Chick-fil-A, but I'm going to guess that part of what has made them a success is that 
the culture that drove that efficiency isn't just about efficiency, right? The culture that, mm -hmm. that drove that efficiency is probably a willingness to rethink, to say, we've got something that's working really well. We've got other parts that, that work fine, but what would happen if we stepped back and said, what would it look like if I completely re-engineered this? If I, if, I, if I took an innovative mindset towards things that we are not thinking about as in need of innovation. And there's a way in which you are marrying the process geeks with the innovators in a yeah. really constructive way, right? Because Chick-fil-A doesn't need to tear itself down and rebuild itself as, you know, beyond filet. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, it's like, it, it, it's doing real well as it is. But I think that it has to, it has to understand. And I would imagine they're very smart people over there. I would have to imagine that they have conversations all the time about what's working today that might not work tomorrow. What is working for us really well that could work even better and make sure that they are so nimble that they're not freezing themselves in time so that something that feels really smart today is their is their death knell 10 20 years from now so you just hit the nail on the head in terms of the integration of culture i mean it is the culture that embraces the desire to do something that hey on paper isn't very sexy but it has changed the experience for the customer and that that means it's a customer centric experience it's a customer centric culture other companies who are just hey let's get through this you know, the difference in my mind is you go through other drive-throughs that are the same old thing and you're backed up and it's slow and you get shitty food. At the same time, here's a company that has embraced the opportunity to say, hey, let's do this better. Yeah, I th right. That's absolutely right. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have some innovation lab that's cooking up all sorts of crazy ideas that may or may not ever come to fruition, but they're doing it top to bottom. They're thinking about crazy stuff for the future. And they're thinking about how can we make the drive-through experience better by rethinking what it is. And that's a powerful, powerful way to think about infusing the idea and the opportunity of change into your business is to basically just be saying, can we continually reinvent just because something works well now doesn't mean that it can't work better tomorrow. Right. So let's bring this back around to some of our innovators, our, our early sure. entrepreneurs. Um, what kind of advice would you have for those who are, you know, they've been working on their startup, maybe they've launched now that they're in the middle of this. What kind of advice do you have in terms of taking all this away and having them think about, hey, I'm raising money, I'm launching a product, I'm not sure about the future, I've got a young family I'm worrying about. Like we deal with these dynamics all the time. And, you know, here at the Corporate Research Center, we're science and technology based. So there's a lot of risk in terms of the milestones and the data, but it still boils down to the same thing in terms of creating the customer experience, launching the product and getting something innovative in the hands of the customers. So, you know, as we think about integrating all of this and, you know, your, your body of work and understanding what's going on out there in the, in the world of a change, uh, what kind of advice would you have for our young investigators, entrepreneurs around that? So I'm going to tell you, two quick fun stories from history because i love stories of innovation throughout history my podcast build for tomorrow is very much exploring what can we learn from yesterday that's applying to today and so here are two little moments that i'm going to tell you and then i'll bring it back around to your question okay so number one is people think that henry ford is the reason that cars became 
um, you know, widespread uh, a transformative uh, uh, technology. And, uh, and, and that's true in a way. He obviously had a significant impact on car manufacturing. But actually something happened before cars, that, or before Henry Ford, that made it possible for him to have the success that he had. And it was this. Uh, when cars were first introduced to the road, on, on, onto the road, they shot at the cars. They yelled, get a horse! When a car would drive by, they were really they hated these things. They called them the devil wagon. And you know what? You know what turned the tide there? It was, I mean, it was a number of things, obviously. This is not a monocausal situation, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one big one. And that is that the car manufacturers realized that they were talking about cars all wrong. They were talking about cars as a replacement to the horse. They were telling people, get rid of your horse, get a car. And you know what? People didn't like that. They hated that because the, car, the, the, the horse was right. a member of the family. Mm-hmm. And the horse, they had had the horse forever. Their grandfather had had a horse and his grandfather had had a horse. And so now you're going to tell me to get rid of this horse, the member of the family? No, screw you. And so car manufacturers started talking about the car differently. They stopped talking about the car as a replacement to the horse. And they started talking about the car as a better horse. Mm. And in doing so, they started naming cars after horses. We still have that today, the Mustang. We, they started using words that were horse-like, horsepower, for example. Mm-hmm. And they tried to do everything that they could to make the car feel like a horse because they came to understand something that was really important. And that was that people love new things but they hate when those new things are disruptive to their old thing, unless mm-hmm. they understand and they are able to cross and they are given the opportunity to cross what I call the bridge of familiarity. You have mm-hmm. to identify what it is that people need and want. What are the solutions that they're looking for? And then how do you provide it in a way that they understand how it fits into their lives? And I think that oftentimes innovators are so caught up, rightfully so, in the great thing that they've produced, that they don't understand that people don't immediately appreciate their solution. And instead, they might see their solution as a problem because they don't understand how it fits into their lives. One more story from history to, to really show you how this plays out. In the middle of the 1900s, elevators, which people had you know, become very familiar with, they'd been around for decades, mm-hmm. um, elevators had elevator operators. Originally, that was mm-hmm. By necessity, the, the elevator operator literally moved the elevator up and down. I mean, when we're talking like early days of elevators, there was a rope that went through the mm-hmm. elevator car and, and a person like pulled it up and down and that's how the elevator moved, right? But by the 50s, nobody needs an elevator operator anymore. The, the, the technology is there now to just press a button and have the elevator move up and down. But, um, uh, but when people started introducing these things, buildings started introducing these things, people were freaked out. And uh, one of the right. reasons that they were freaked out was because there is no other experience, even today, there's no mm-hmm. other experience where you step into a, to a, a enclosed area with absolutely no <laughs> windows and no human that's operating right. it and it right. moves you. There's nothing yeah. else like that. It's scary. <laughs> And so what, what is it, right? It's scary. You don't know. There's no human there to trust. It feels like you're at the mercy of this machine and it's got, it's got, air, it's got your whole body. Scary. And so elevator manufacturers were trying to figure out what to do here because here you have this great technology. It's going to make everything more efficient. Like there were a million reasons to get rid of elevator operators, right? Like jobs aside, um, it was cheaper for buildings. Uh, and so that meant that, um, you know, maintenance costs could be lower. And then also elevator operators, <laughs> elevator operators um, didn't work 24 seven. 
they worked like nine to five and then they went home. And so you could miss the last elevator the way that you might miss the last train today. Uh, and so um, what's the solution here? How do you get people to go into these elevators? And the answer, again, one of them, one of the most important answers was to put a soothing female voice in the elevator that says things like going up, going mm-hmm. down, floor one, right? These things, we're still mm-hmm. familiar with that today. Mm-hmm. That was once again, a bridge of familiarity. You had to identify what is the thing that people understand already that they can bring with them into this new thing that you mm-hmm. have developed. And so to your question here about what innovators should be doing and thinking about, I think that one of the big things that innovators fail to remember is that their solutions aren't obvious to other people. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just a matter of understanding where people's problems are, because that is obviously a starting point. There's no reason to build something if it doesn't solve a problem for somebody, but to also understand how they come at that problem and how they understand how a solution and, and a replacement to whatever the previous solution was is going to impact their lives. You need to build a bridge of familiarity for people. They will not cross it themselves. Right. We get so much of that and we get so many people who make assumptions about the market. And mm-hmm. what you're saying is really good because, you know, be disruptive, but don't, you know, don't be so disruptive that you have lost the customer. I mean, you've lost the yeah. experience. So be a disruptor, but don't be so disruptive that it's so unfamiliar that nobody wants it. That's so you right. Have to, you have to be connective in, in ways that I, I love that bridge of familiarity. Thanks. And right. And, and you know, what's really interesting, I mean, you know, to, to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning here, which is about moments of crisis and the opportunities that, that arise because of them is the, the, the crisis can be a time in which people are willing to consider disruptive ideas in a way that they didn't before. Right? So, you know, you, you mm-hmm. just made a really good point about how disruptive ideas can, can be really scary to people. People don't, people don't want to be disrupted. We talk about industries being disrupted. Nobody wants to be disrupted. So when you release something into the world that, that is quote unquote disruptive, people don't like that, even if they ultimately would like the solution. But there are moments, there are moments of need, there are moments of recalibration where a disruptive idea that might have been terrifying before mm-hmm. suddenly right. becomes really valuable. The one thing that jumps out to me um, just kind of briefly is, is uh, I talked to this guy named Aziz Hashim, who is a franchise owner. He owns like 700 franchise restaurants across the country. And, um, and he had been working on a solution to his own problem pre-COVID. His own problem is that uh, restaurants don't operate at full capacity. So, you know, if you're, if you're a restaurant kitchen is operating at like 75% capacity. You've got, you've, that's like a lot of money left on the table. This is a margins business. So you're really kind of screwed. So how do you increase the margins in your, in your restaurants? Um, it, you know, and there's only so much you can do. You, you market and whatever, try to get more people in. But he thought, well, I've got all these restaurant brands. What if I just start selling one brand's food out of another brand's kitchen? So I take, uh, I take my captain's boil in Canada and I just start selling that food out of a Ruby Tuesday's kitchen in Florida. And then, uh, you know, somebody goes on a seamless, they see captain's boil, they don't know and they don't care that it's sold out of a Ruby Tuesday's. And, um, and so that was an idea that he was just going to do for himself. Because the idea, that is a scary idea writ large, right? You release that to the restaurant industry and they're like, what? Yeah, exactly. Are you, you're, what do you talk? Now I don't need to have a restaurant. Like what? This is terrible. And so, um, you know, you, but once COVID hit, 
Right. COVID hit around the same time that he was going to launch this thing for himself. And so he decided to just open it up to the rest of the restaurant industry. And suddenly restaurants were so desperate for new sources of revenue that they flocked to this thing. And he could not scale it up fast enough because the demand was so high. And I asked him, I said, look, if you had released this to the restaurant industry pre-COVID, would you have, what kind of success would you have had? And he was said, people would have been scared of this thing. But now, now they need it. So it's, it's not it's just that, about disruptive ideas. It's about timing too. It's that loss aversion taken off the table. They have no choice. Right. You know, the, right. the risk of losing everything. Now let's try something more, more innovative, more disruptive. That's right. Mm-hmm. Jason, how's the research going? I know you're working on a new book. Um, tell us a little yes. bit about that. Yeah, well, so the book, it's a, it's a while away, so um, don't line up at the bookstore just yet, uh, but it's called, <laughs> tentatively called at least Build for Tomorrow, Not for Yesterday, and it'll come out uh, from uh, Penguin Random House in uh, August of 22, and it's really, it's really a lot of what we've been talking about today. I mean, the, the, the starting point for me is why are people resistant to change, and then how mm-hmm. can you get them to see opportunity in change, and the more that I talk to the greatest innovators of today and the people who, and and I look at the stories from yesterday, the more I see these interesting patterns, you know, these patterns, like things like, um, you know, I I think one of the reasons why people are so resistant to change is because it's so much easier to see loss than it is to see gain. You know, you Mm -hmm. see loss immediately. uh, And then you extrapolate that loss, which is how you get these crazy ideas that people have had throughout history about how this, you know, one innovation is going to lead, like, you know, John Philip Sousa, the, the famous composer thinking that the phonograph was going to literally turn children into, into kind of robotic creatures, right? Like there's, mm. there's a logic there, but you have to go like 14 steps and, and, and it's an extrapolation of a perceived loss and people don't see gain. And I think that the real power for innovators is that they, they, ha- they understand the gain, they see the gain. And then I think the, the greatest, one of the greatest innovator challenges, which we talked about already is, is the ability to communicate the gain right. um, and to get people to believe in the gain. So, so this is a book that's really designed not just for people in business, but is for, for anybody who's facing any kind of moment of change to understand what does it take to shift that perception from panic, as I said in the beginning, to wouldn't go back. Exactly. Jason, we love it. Uh, Build for Tomorrow is the podcast. Problem solvers also. We love your work. I mean, just such great production value. Uh, and we're certainly also here at the CRC. We're looking forward to having you uh, make a virtual appearance for Game Changer Week. That's going to be August 23rd through the 27th. And we're going to put all the cool notes and links for all of your great work in our show notes for this podcast. Perfect. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And, and you know, other ways to engage with your community. You, you guys are doing great work down there and uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. Uh, Jason Pfeiffer, uh, CEO of Beyond Filet, I believe it is. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <we're> exactly. Looking- <laughs> yeah, breaking breaking news right now. Breaking news. There you go. Great startup. Um, we're we're really glad. We're grateful for your time today, Jason. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you. And that's it for this episode. Subscribe to Start Disrupting wherever you get your podcasts. We have a new disruptor on our show every two weeks, and you're not going to want to miss it. Check out vtcrc.com for the latest on our research park and over 225 companies that call us home. Until next time, always change the game.